Welcome, all of you wine and true crime lovers. I'm your host, Brandy. And I'm Jamie. And this is Texas Wine and True Crime. Great to be here with all of you today. We hope you are staying well and happy through all of this COVID craziness. Hey there, Jamie. How are you? I'm fantastic. How are you? Oh, just doing fine. The sun is out today and having some wine. So, yeah, life is good. No complaints. Anything new for you? Not too much. Just getting ready for the holiday. Thanksgiving's already gone. Yes. So next is Christmas. Yes. Um, decorating in full effect for sure. It's my probably my favorite time to decorate. I do like decorating for Halloween, but I, I really like decorating for Christmas. So it is coming up. All right. So the crime we chose for this week is the case of Candy Montgomery. The wine for this week is named Roussan, and it comes from our friends at McPherson Cellars. Now, Jamie, this is our second bottle of wine from McPherson, and we love the red so much, you guys, that we wanted to try a white. So pretty yummy so far. Uh, This full-bodied and smooth white wine made from the Roussan grape is a great substitute for Chardonnay. We are tasting for hints of melon, pear, and bell peppers today. So bell peppers, Jamie, that's a new one for me. Me too. Yeah. So um, going to be sniffing for that one. Uh, this is not an oaky wine. So for those that don't like the oak flavors or, or really um, don't drink Chardonnay, this one is definitely for you. And of course, hang out until the end so you can catch our wine rating and reviews and learn more about McPherson Cellars. But before we jump into episode six, Jamie, do you want to let our listeners know where they can find us on social media? Absolutely. They can get us on Instagram at Texas Wine and True Crime, and then also visit our website at TexasWineAndTrueCrime.com. Yes. And on our website, you can leave us comments. You can just say hello, comment on any episode. You can catch the episodes there as well. And of course, follow us on Instagram because that's where we post all of our pictures and all of our updates for our listeners. Okay, Jamie, are you ready to get into this week's case, A Murderous Visit? I certainly am. This was a, yeah. This one was an interesting one in this a way. This is a big case. <laughs> yeah. This is a big Huge one in Texas. For us here especially, yeah. Yeah. And we're talking uh, big then, big now. People still talk about this case. Yep. Yep. All right. All right, friends, listeners, let's sip some wine and talk some crime. This week, we are talking about the case of Candy Montgomery and what happened on Friday, June 13th, 1980 in Wiley, Texas. So now, Jamie, we've got a Friday the 13th case. I was thinking that same thing. And 40 years ago. That's crazy. 40 years ago. So as always, some of our listeners are not from Texas. So let's give them just some a few unique facts about where our crime takes place right here in Wiley, Texas. Not far from us. Just a... what, about 20, 30 minutes from here? It's not far. No, it's not far. I've done some work up there, yeah. Yeah, not not far at all. Um, all right, so let's get into some unique facts. Number one, Wiley was hit by a tornado in 1993, and in December 1998, the city was ravaged by two fires. Now, Jamie, I have pictures from that fire, and I will put them up on our Instagram. Um, it basically engulfed the entire downtown area. Uh, in 1998. So I will definitely post those. Have you seen pictures of that? Did you know that? Mm -mm, Yeah. mm -mm. Uh, So a few of the, basically all the businesses in downtown were on fire. And then it uh, tore through some of the homes um, that were near downtown. So 
Yeah, it was a big fire. Number two, until the early 1960s, Wiley was known as the onion capital of the world. What? Yes, Wiley became famous for the sweet white onions grown here. Huh. I know. <laughs> I love white onions. I Onion rings. Right. Especially the sweet ones. They're good. Mm-hmm. Like, like the deli onions. But, yeah. Huh. Had no idea. And number three. Now, this is a little bit longer one, but it's pretty cool. So before it was named Wiley, the small town was named Nickelville. So, Jamie, they said it was either called Nickelville because somebody said it's not even worth a nickel to live here, <laughs> or there is a nickel store in downtown. Both could be true, but that's the two references of where this name comes from. (laughs) So it was rumored that the Santa Fe Railway was building tracks north of Nickelville and bringing prosperity with it. So the engineer that was in charge was Colonel W.D. Wiley. And he was really anxious to have a town named after him. So he promised he would do great things with the railroad if they changed the name to Wiley. So Dr. John Butler, who who is said to be the earliest settler in Nickelville, submitted Wiley's name to the town leaders, and it was approved in 1886. I'm sure they're grateful for that because Nickelville is just Nickelville is terrible. <laughs> um, and but it was a big deal. So like Dallas leaders came out. Um, there was a there's a really cool backstory on um, some of this. So listeners, feel free to check that out um, on your own. So there you go. Some fun facts about Wiley. All right, Jamie, let's get back to the case of Candy Montgomery and what happened on June 30th, 1980. Friday the 13th in 1980, Candy Montgomery hacked Betty Gore to death with 41 whacks of an axe in the laundry room of her own home. So, Jamie, we just passed the 40-year anniversary of this case. And like we mentioned, people are still talking about it until this day. Now, Candace Montgomery, known to others as Candy, was a 30-year-old loving mother and housewife. On her free time, she taught Bible classes at her local church, sang in the choir, was petite and soft-spoken, and was well-liked by those that knew her. Candy and her husband, Pat Montgomery, settled in a beautiful home in Lucas, Texas, with their son and daughter. So, Jamie, Lucas is about five miles from Wiley, not, mm-hmm. not too far. So that's where the Gores live, yeah. is Wiley. Uh, Lucas is also really close to where the popular series Dallas was filmed. Mm-hmm. So we watched that a lot as kids, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they have that famous mansion out there where, where it was actually filmed and took place. So yeah. beautiful area. South Fork Ranch. Yeah, it's beautiful out there. Betty Gore was a housewife and mom. She was a fifth grade teacher up until she had her first child, but then became a stay-at-home mom. So, Jamie, to outsiders, they referred to Betty as quiet. She didn't smile all that much. Um, And after her first child was born, her behavior, behavior just started to change a bit. It was noticed by people in the community, by her husband at home, She went to a doctor, and he thought she was suffering from PPD, which otherwise now we know it as postpartum depression. But back in the 70s, there wasn't much known about PPD like there is now. And basically, the doctor would just prescribe her some medicine and just send her on her way. 
Betty and her husband, Alan Gore, settled in a modest family home with their two daughters. Okay, so now we've got the Montgomerys living in Lucas, which is about five minutes from Wiley. We've got the Gores living in Wiley. They both have two children, and let's kind of talk about how these families know each other. So the Gores and the Montgomerys attended the same church. Betty and Candy considered themselves friends. Now, I wouldn't say they were best friends, Jamie, but they were definitely close enough that they trusted each other with, you know, each other's children Mm -hmm. when it comes to the sleepovers and the playdates. And Candy also threw Betty her baby shower. So there's definitely a relationship there. They might not be best friends, but they're definitely friends. Both the Gores and Montgomery's were, were close. I would just say based on my research, the kids were best friends. Um, so these two ladies definitely spent some time together, um, considering how close their kids were. Alan Gore was said to be somewhat handsome, quiet, a little introverted, but he was active in the choir and in the church volleyball league. And this is where Alan starts to catch Candy's eye. One day, after choir practice, Candy approaches Alan for a little chit-chat. She tells Alan that she's been noticing him lately and comes out and just says what's on her mind, Jamie. (laughs) Would you be up to having an affair? Now, Alan is kind of caught off guard by this a bit. Um, But he knows things at home with Betty haven't been all that great for a while. And I also think Jamie here, Candy, knew that, right? She was around this family. She knew there were issues with Betty. She knew there were problems in the marriage. But man, Candy makes it clear that this is physical only. Right. No divorces from our spouses, no strings attached, just some good old-fashioned sex. I don't know how she thought this was a good idea. I mean, too close. Well, right? <laughs> and we talked about that being too close, but again, I and I'll and I'll talk about this a little bit later, but I feel like there was a connection there as far as trust. I feel like she trusted him. I feel like maybe she could like in her mind, she thought if I wanted to experience some things, maybe this is who I can do it with and not feel like I'm going to be told on. I, I just feel like she, for some reason, she trusted him enough yeah. to go to him and even say that in the first place, right? She's got some. Facts. He could have gone home and told Betty. But for some reason, I feel like she knew that he wasn't going to do that. Yeah. Maybe he was giving her the eye back, like during choir. Yeah. <laughs> like- mm-hmm. Could be. One night, Alan calls Candy. Remember, these families are friends, and there's no cell phones back then. So they had to call each other on their landlines. Now, just a little side note. Affairs have been going on for, I mean, centuries, right? Yeah. Things have been, I mean, it happens. So, But think about it when there was no cell phones. And you had to call the landline at the at the mistress or the, what do you, right. call, what do you call the male and the mistress? If the, if the woman's a mistress, what's the male? Mister? No. <laughs> somebody email me and tell me what it is all right so um yeah so that's what i think they they candy was catching his um you know alan was kind of catching her eye she approaches him and she asks him about the affair and he's like okay so what does he do he calls her he calls the house and says hey meet me for dinner and she says okay when and where She's on board. They get together. They start chatting, talking about life. 
And then Alan tells her that maybe having an affair won't be so bad. Oh, and you know, I read that that was actually her birthday. The first time they went to like lunch or dinner. Ooh. Yeah. So extra special. Yes. Oh. I think he brought her a card too, which made her feel all like warm and fuzzy. Yeah. So, um, birthday, huh? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. There's a lot of birthdays around this, some of these. I know this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this story. Yeah. I know. Weird. So they go have dinner. They're chit-chatting, getting to know each other a little bit. And Jamie, I... I think this was exciting for him. Another woman showing interest, someone he knows well, someone he thinks he can trust with maybe a big secret. So they start to meet up at an hourly rate hotel once a week. I read about that too. I can't remember the name, but it was real. Do they even still do that by the hour? Sure, of course. Yeah? Yeah. It used to be now motel, like motel. I don't know. That's interesting. I don't remember hotels being out. I well, so. I mean, I, you probably don't visit them very often. <laughs> I, I hope not anyway. If you know of an hourly rate hotel, email us. <laughs> All right. So they were meeting up about once a week. Um, sometimes they would have sex and other times Candy just wanted to be held and feel emotionally, emotionally taken care of by Alan. Now, Candy and Alan continued this tryst for a few months and then... Alan calls it off between them. So from the research I did, it was basically like he did, wasn't getting what he thought he was going to get from the affair. Yeah. And he thought it would be worse for Betty to find out mm-hmm. and then divorce me than me actually calling this off. Yeah. Well, he probably felt a little guilty, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, probably guilt and conscious is catching up with him. So he calls it off and Candy's like, mm, okay. Um. Because she said that later um, in interviews that the sex wasn't all that great anyways. So just not much loss there. So she's kind of okay with this, but they just continue to go on with life. They're friends. They continue life as usual. The kids are playing with each other's kids, sleepovers, and of course, the occasional visit between Betty and Candy. Now, Pat Montgomery, Candy's husband, he actually finds out about this affair, Jamie, but forgave his wife and said that the whole thing was actually his fault. And he knows that he wasn't giving Candy the kind of attention that she needed. Hmm. Now, the husbands actually worked together at Texas Instruments. Right. Right. So Texas Instruments had, I think they had just moved a, a, had an office there, right? They had a facility out there. And so people, a lot of people were moving to that area, moving into those homes. And so, They knew each other, but Pat never confronts Alan on this. He confronts his wife. They they work it out, and he never mentions it to him. Now, we are here on the day of the incident, Friday, June 13th, 1980. The day starts like any other. Candy is teaching her Bible class at the church that day. Betty is at home with her infant daughter. Now, Candy is talking to Alyssa at the church. So Alyssa is Betty and Alan's daughter, and she wanted to have a sleepover with Candy's daughter that night. So it's a Friday, Jamie. It's the summertime. The girls are, you know, wanting to have a sleepover. So they have swim practice that day. And so Candy tells Alyssa, I will go over to your house, ask your mom if it's okay that you go to the movies tonight and sleep over, and I'll pick up your swimsuit for practice. 
There was plenty going on at the school later that day. Uh, I'm sorry, there was a play actually going on at the at the school later that day, and Candy's son was going to be performing in the play. So, Jamie, Candy tells the other teachers that she's got to run over to Betty Gore's house and pick up Alyssa's swimsuit and ask her if it was okay for Alyssa to spend the night at, the, at her home. Mm-hmm. Now, she also mentions to them that she has to make a stop by Target to get birthday cards for Pat, her husband. Right. But she said, I'll be back in plenty of time to see the play. Candy leaves the school and heads over to the Gore home. Candy never made it back to the play on time. She left the Gore home with a bloody toe, an injured head, soaking wet, and went home to change. When she arrived back at the school, she told the other teachers that her and Betty just lost track of time. They were chatting, but then she realized her watch had stopped. She never was able to make it to Target, and she was so sorry she was late. So what happened in the Gore home on Friday the 13th, 1980? And now it's time for a wine recess. I like this white. I do too. I do. I like it that it's not oaky. Mm-mm. I'm just not. I think I've said this before, but I'm not a Chardonnay person. So I'm not a Chardonnay person either. Yeah. So this one is delicious. Yeah, it's very good. Um, I don't know if I've found the bell pepper yet. I haven't. I don't know. I thought I smelled it a little bit, but I definitely noticed the pear and the melon for yeah. sure. Let me see. I yeah, need a smell, refill. Yeah, refill and then smell. Hmm. Do all pell peppers smell the same? Pell peppers? <laughs> bell pepper, pe- pepper, bell pepper. Do they, um, do they the Yeah, I think so. Right? I mean, they may have like a slightly different smell between like green, red, the, orange, yeah, yellow. Yeah. Huh. Hmm, I don't know. It's it tastes good. good, though. I've never heard of Roussan grape. No, I haven't either. And um, it's it's delicious. Yeah. But I I've never, I've never heard of I it. I would recommend. Yeah, I definitely recommend. And McPherson, we love your wine so much. This is our second yes. bottle, and the red was so really good. Uh, tre colore, tre colore. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that was a good one. <laughs> I'm still practicing that. All right, Jamie, you ready to get back in the case? Yep, yep. Great. So at this point, Alan is out of town for business, and he's trying to get a hold of his wife. So this is the same day, Jamie. He's It's Friday, early evening, and he keeps calling the home. He's even calling neighbors, asking if they've seen her, and then he even calls Candy. Candy tells him that she saw her at 10 a.m. that morning, picked up Alyssa's things. She said Betty gave her peppermints to reward Alyssa for going underwater. And then she tells Alan, I left. Betty tells him Betty tells him that Alyssa is with her and and Pat, right? The family's there with the kids and they're all spending the night. So Alyssa's fine. He's worried about his wife. He knows the infant daughter's in the home. So he's getting a little frantic at this point. So Candy offers to go over there and check on her, but Alan says no. I'll just keep trying her, and he's getting very worried. 
and because he know his wife does not do well when he's out of town. So Jamie, she gets scared being in the house by herself. Yeah. Um, she has an infant daughter, and I guess she just sleeps better when he's there. So he knows that his wife gets a little frantic and scared, and he's just worried that you know that something has either happened or. And remember, she has been dealing with bouts of depression at this time. So I think the. You know, his alert is a little bit higher right? Uh, and a little nervous that he hasn't hasn't heard from her. So at this point, he's frantic. So what does he do? He calls several male neighbors and says, guys, listen, I haven't heard from Betty. I'm really worried about her. My daughter is in the house. Can you just go over to my house and check on her? So they do. Three guys go over. They have flashlights. They notice that the front door is open. And now we're into the evening hours on that Friday. So there's hours that have gone by here. The men enter the home, hear a baby crying. They walk around, don't see anything unusual until they crack open the laundry room door. On the floor, they notice a woman's left arm lying in so much blood and fluid. Jamie, it was actually floating above the floor. I know. So gross a lot they find the body of betty gore the men call alan tell him what they have found and then call the police they tell alan it doesn't look good it looks like she was shot now remember betty had a history of depression people knew that jamie she took medication to regulate her moods so initially these guys think she took her own life right right so the baby is crying, soiled. They pick up the baby and, and leave after they call the police. So Alan calls Candy, and he tells her about Betty being found and asks her, can you, know, can you keep Alyssa until we just figure this out? I'm going to come back in town, but can you just take care of her? And she says, absolutely. So Candy is visibly upset, tells her husband about Betty being found, and she's crying and just broken up over the news. The police are investigating the scene. It's clear this is not a gunshot. Under the refrigerator, in the laundry room where Betty was found, was a three-foot axe. So now, Jamie, they've got the weapon, right? Right. There, it's, the laundry room is a bloody mess. There's a woman... Hacked. <laughs> hacked, right? Um, so Alan's back. He's back in town. And, of course, the police are now questioning everyone that came in contact with Betty that day and the preceding days of her death. So we think about now, uh, Jamie, 40 years later, and how investigations would probably take a little bit more time, be depending on the area and, and who saw these people. But they know things about Betty that day. They know Alan's out of town. They know Candy went to see her. They know this is a town of 3,000 people. Mm -hmm. They know that everybody kind of knows everybody. They know she has an infant daughter. They know she's never just not picked up the phone. So there's this goes pretty quickly when yeah. it comes to the investigation, the police questioning, and who the suspects actually end up being. Yeah. So she's hit 41 times, Jamie, with an axe. The force was so evident based on the condition of the body. The right side of her face was nothing but flesh and bone. And the only thing that remained on her face besides the left side was her left eye. So the right side is completely gone. The right eye is gone. The right side of her face is completely gone. So, yeah. Yeah, I just, I remember reading, um, mm -hmm. I think like from the autopsy, there was 
like one, and this is really bad, that there was one wound where they could tell that the axe had gotten like caught, like in the skull. And it was had to, like they had to wiggle it out, whoever the murderer was. And they could tell by like the way, like it wasn't just like a clean like chop, right? It, right. They could tell like, it, so it was like had to be yanked back out to then proceed. It's like, oh my gosh, crazy. So they, okay, so let's talk about that. The force hit her in the back of the neck and they couldn't get it out, right? I guess it had gone into the, the, the spine. Neck, the skull, the skull. wherever. And oh, and they had so to wiggle they had it to, back yeah, out. Like back and forth oh, to get to get it out, to keep going. Like, yeah. Well, whomever did this to Betty Jamie, they were either clearly angry or crazy or maybe a little bit of both. Yeah. The crime was in the paper immediately. So huge news here in Texas, especially in the, da- you know, the Dallas Morning News ran an article. Mm-hmm. Now, remember, she wasn't found until that evening. So really nothing came out about it until over the weekend. Although I'm sure the house was surrounded, right? Surrounded. Oh, by then all the neighbors mm-hmm. were probably like, what's going on mm-hmm. over there? So yeah, in that small town like that, too. Yeah, someone had axed a woman to death, you know, in her own home with mm-hmm. her child laying sleeping in another room. People, it was huge, right? It was a huge story in 1980. So who could have done such a thing? People are scared. They thought a murderer was on the loose. Um, What did Betty, you know, what did she do to deserve such a tragic death? So at this point, the cops are questioning everyone. And now it's Candy's turn. She tells them the story she told the teachers when she returned to the school. She was calm, collected, and tells them, yes, I saw Betty at 10 a.m. We had a great chat. We lost track of time. I left the home and I went back to the school. Candy tells the police, you know, whatever happened to Betty must have happened after I left because all was normal when I was there during my visit. But the police, Jamie, they're a little suspicious of her story. Mm -hmm. They had found a bloody shoe print. Right. Which was small. Which was small. And a thumbprint. On the fridge. Right. So I'm not sure if you saw the interview or read about the interview, but in that interview, they asked her, did you touch the fridge? Right. And she says, I don't know. I can't remember if I touched the fridge or not. So now she's been questioned. And Candy is a little nervous. So she starts to confide in a lawyer at her church. And his name is Don Crowder. He tells Candy, you're okay. You didn't do it. They have to question everyone. And Candy, you saw her the day she died. Right. So you're going to be questioned. Of course. More than once and probably. So just, you know, stick with your story and you didn't do it. So you have nothing to worry about. Well, the police are starting to put the heat on Candy. They are convinced she is the killer. She decides that maybe it's time I hire a lawyer. So she asked Don Crowder to represent her. Don and Candy sit down for a talk, and he tells her, I need to know the truth. Who did this to her and why? Was it Alan? She says, no, it was me. The lawyer is taken back (laughs) because he's like, no, really, who did this? I can imagine the look on his face (laughs) like, oh, God. Yeah, she's like, no, I did it. And he's like, no, really, who did it? And she says, no, I did it. 
Now, he's in shock, Jamie, because he thought this, the brutality of this murder. Right. How could she be responsible for this? This little sweet church-going lady. Yes. How could she be the perpetrator? Right. Um, He thinks she's actually covering up for someone. So he doesn't even really believe her when she says, you know, I did it. He thinks, okay, she's covering so as we know, in some cases, Jamie, when the and crime involves overkill or just a heinous act of violence, like in this case, the defense will immediately look for crime of passion, self-defense, insanity. You know, they want to have a way to defend their client. Don Crowder decides to take Candy to a psychotherapist and have her hypnotized to make sure she is telling him the truth. After the hypnosis session, he tells Don... Not only did she do it, but the anger and rage behind the overkill was triggered by trauma as a child. The therapist would tell Don, she is not insane. So insanity is off the table. Right. Therapist said, nope, she's not, she's not crazy, but she was triggered. So let's, let's, we'll get into more of that. Now, again, like we said, Wiley was about 3,000 people living there in, in 1980. So everyone in town is pretty acquainted one way or another. So Don Crowder makes a call to his friend at the police station, tells him, hey, she confessed to me, and that he's going to bring her into the station. So he calls Candy and tells her, hey, listen. I'm going to take you to the police station. They're going to read you your rights. They're going to arrest you for murder. And that's exactly what happened. And then after that, she is out on bail and returns home. Yeah. $100,000 bail. I know. Back 40 years ago. That's like a lot of money. That's a lot of money. I guess you didn't have to just pay 10% back then. You had to pay like the full thing. <laughs> right? Because maybe they, have, they maybe they had her on a million. They have bail bondsmen back then? Yeah. 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 Bail bonds have been around for like... How long have bail bondsmen been out? Email us. Such we, Google stuff. We have a lot of questions. We have real. a lot of Google. We have a lot of Google questions. Okay, so this is what happens. She she gets out on bail and then returns home. Now let's fast forward to the trial. Multiple witnesses testify that Candy knew she had to tell her side of the story. She wanted everyone in the town to know. Why she killed Betty in self-defense. Okay, so they're coming out swinging. Right. She was defending herself against Betty. I mean, that's all she's really got to stand on at this point, because she's not crazy. Yeah, not not, deemed not crazy. Yeah. So they had to choose something else, and they're going with self-defense. Now, listeners, everything I'm about to share with you is from Candy's side of the story, since the only two people that know really what happened that day, Jamie, are Candy and Betty. Yeah. So on Candy's words, when she's on the stand, Candy tells the court, I arrived at the Gore home. Betty Gore is there along with her infant daughter. Candy is chatting with her, asking her about Alyssa sleeping over, and she tells her she needs Alyssa's swimsuit. And after all this, Candy is collecting her things, and Betty says to her, are you having an affair with Alan? Nervous and caught off guard, she hesitates and then says no. But then according to Candy, Betty says, don't lie. And then Candy tells Betty, okay, yes, we did have an affair, but it ended months ago. 
According to Candy's version of events, Betty walked out of the room and returned with an axe in her hand. She tells Candy, you can't have him. Candy tells Betty, I don't want him. Betty tells Candy, the swimsuit is in the laundry room. Go get it while I grab the towel so you can leave. Candy says she walks in the laundry room, grabs the swimsuit, turns around, and Betty is standing in the doorway with the axe. So now she's in the doorway with the axe. Candy cannot get by her. Right. She's standing there with the swimsuit in her hand. Um, they're just looking at each other, right? So she said, like, she had crazy eyes and she was just standing there and she was trying to figure out a way that she could, you know, go past her. So Candy says that after Betty's standing there with the axe in her hand, she says, shh, almost a silent candy, right? Telling candy to be quiet because I'm about to kill you. Mm-hmm. Oh, that just gave me chills. I know, right? <laughs> like, oh. like you're cornered in a room. I based on her, te- now based on her testimony of what she said, like, like we, I mean, we don't, we were not there that day. Those yeah. two women were the only one there that day. Right. And, you know, candy's the only one alive to. Tell her side. To tell her side. So she tells her to shoot. Candy then says Betty starts swinging at her, which is how her head and her toe were cut. So Jamie, she says she picks up the axe, takes a shot at her, and basically, you know, starts at the top, hits the head, comes down, hits the toe, misses her midsection. And then she all of a sudden is able to wrestle the axe away from Betty. So she grabs onto the axe. You know, maybe... I guess if I was hit with an axe, like if I could, if I could feel it, but I knew that I wasn't so injured that I could keep going, I can imagine like some sort of part of me would just be like in full force defense oh, mode, yeah, right? Your adrenaline would take over. Adrenaline for sure. take like, over, fighting for your life. Yeah, so I would have tackled her. <laughs> yeah, so again, we don't know what happened. We weren't there, but um, and then she gets the she gets the axe away from Betty, and then she just hits her. And she just can't stop. She just keeps hitting her and hitting her and hitting her until she couldn't swing the three-foot axe any longer. She puts down the weapon, goes into the bathroom, Jamie, Mm. and showers with all of her clothes on. Well, I'm sure she had quite a bit of blood on her, you know? Like, head to toe after 41 hits. Yeah. So she goes into their bathroom. And I even think she said the ba- she heard the baby crying. Ugh, it still cringes me that the baby was in the house. Yeah. Um, but she goes into the shower, takes a shower um, with all of her clothes on. And then she leaves the house, goes home, and changes her clothes. But she also changes her flip-flops because she had flip-flops on and they were broken from the scuffle, right, and what's right. going on. So she throws them away. And then she puts on some blue tennis shoes. Yeah. She actually like chopped them up, which was like the flip flops. I think it was later, maybe. But she okay. cut them up because of the footprint, right? They right. found the they footprint. Found a footprint. So then yeah. she ends up like cutting them into pieces so that they could like match the. <laughs> okay. Well, that's not insanity. You know what you're doing. Right. All right. So after that, she makes her way back to the school and she just continues her day, takes the kids to where they need to go. And that's that. 
So the, the psychotherapist that hypnotized Candy would testify that the word, now, Jamie, this is interesting, mm. that the word shh is what triggered the rage from a childhood event. Yeah. He told the jury that people can be unconsciously triggered by words, thoughts, feelings that make them lash out in a fit of rage. Right. It's like PTSD, right? Like right. You- Something triggers it yeah. and you just lose control. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Right. And you don't and you just can't stop. Yeah. You know, you you're you're picturing what has happened to you back then. Yep. Like flashback. And yep. Flashback and just and unleashing the rage on that. Yeah. And this is what the defense claims happened to Candy Montgomery on June 30th, 1980. Jamie, it took the jury just three hours to deliberate. They find Candy Montgomery not guilty of murder. She is acquitted based on the claim of self-defense. Candy Montgomery walks out of the courtroom a free woman. The Montgomerys end up moving to Atlanta, where Candy becomes a counselor. Alan Gore, yeah. For what? I don't know. (laughs) Maybe, I don't, maybe her, don't you think sometimes maybe when people get a second chance at life, right? Think they, they try to do something to make the world a better place based on what they did in their past life. Well, and it didn't seem like she was a bad person. No. Like to start with. Right. So that's what yeah, she really... was always working with children and yeah. doing Bible classes. And right. so counseling seems like a pretty. Yeah. Yeah. But she did hack a woman yeah. up she 41 just... times. Yeah. Had that and, one, and you don't. That one moment. <laughs> yeah. And that's the thing. It's like nobody was there but those two women. Yeah. And Betty isn't here to tell her side of the story. Yeah. It's definitely a mystery for sure. Because I, like we said, she was just a normal everyday person. And then right. that one incident could have changed. What if they'd found her guilty? Like her whole life. It's so, oh my gosh, I don't know. And she would have gone to prison first. So she yeah. was 30 years old when this took place. Yeah. And she would have gone to prison for the rest of her life. And what if it would have been self-defense? Right. And then you're accused of murder and yeah. having to spend your life in So prison. many what ifs in this one. Yeah. Which is probably why it's been talked about all these years. Yeah. So, they, uh, yeah, she becomes a counselor. Alan Gore actually remarries pretty quickly after the trial. Uh, but that relationship ended in divorce. And Betty's parents actually end up raising their two daughters once this once this marriage ends. Don Crowder, Candy's attorney, unfortunately, Jamie, he commits suicide on November 10th, 1998. Yeah, man. He was home with his wife, locked himself in a room, and she heard a shot ring out as she sat by the door trying to tell her husband he is loved. I read an article. So she lives in Frisco, I believe now. And um, she said that he left the room they were sleeping in or laying in, and she heard the door close, but she knew he had a gun in that room. He had been arrested for a DWI. So he worked for city of Allen. He was a prosecutor in Collin County and he had a lot of connections. And then when he was arrested for the DWI, it was almost like he couldn't get over it. And people, he felt shamed and people were, would look at him differently because he was such a pillar of the, of the community, you know, both Mm -hmm. as a person in the church and also in his law practice. Right. So, um, he he had a tough time, she said, over the years. He was a prominent lawyer in Collin County, um, sadly had a history of alcohol abuse and depression, but was definitely well-loved by so many. 
So this is such a twisted tale, Jamie, of fear, jealousy, scandal, friendship, and unfortunately, murder. Yeah, I know. It was a real interesting case to read and mm-hmm. just, yeah, it was because you didn't know what was coming next. And you're like, oh, my God, like the end when I was reading this and then they found her not guilty. I think I, I think I remember messaging you going, did you see how this ends? And you were like, yeah, don't tell me. <laughs> I know. And I don't know if people now, you know, they always say like when people go on trial for certain things based on their race, their you know, their sex, who they are. Yeah. Yeah. Their gender. Maybe, maybe she had an advantage because she was a 30 year old, you know, teacher with no criminal past, a loving mom, a loving wife. Crowder was a good lawyer too. Crowder was a good lawyer. And so let's talk about this. So guys, was this self-defense? Let us know what you think about this case, but Jamie, let's talk a little bit about why she went over there. Because this was a conversation between us, right? Yeah. So if she had premeditated, so let's let's kind of do some what ifs. If she would have premeditated this murder and intended to kill her, we know she went over there to ask permission for Alyssa right. to spend the night at her yeah. house. I think we she kn- legit, yeah. She, that's so we she- think she legit went over there for those reasons, yeah. right? Yeah. So it's kind of like, did something go bad? And did something go bad because of Betty? And this relationship had been over for months. Right. Candy did not miss Alan. Yeah. Candy didn't want to marry Alan. And so now some, like, now we look at these things of, like, her actions of that day. Mm -hmm. And if Betty did find out, you know, was it just, did it just trigger something in Betty? And Candy was there. It was was a moment of opportunity. Right. Right. Was Betty more mentally ill or sick than we know? Right, right. Yeah, well, because I think um, they are, They also said, they always, like a lot of people that knew them said that Candy was like really nice and sweet and that Betty was very standoffish and not friendly. Mm-hmm. So they, they kind of made her look like she possibly could have. And then I also read in other places that Betty found the axe in, no, not Betty, Candy mm-hmm. got the axe from the garage. So there's no, like, we'll never really know, obviously, right. as we've said. Because the pro- because- prosecution said Candy found the axe in the house. Right. Like, and went after her rather than exactly. vice versa. Right, that she found it, in the, yeah, in the garage inside That's the house. Because right. she definitely didn't take it with her, right? I right, mean, yeah, we talked about carry- that, too. Like, did she <laughs> like, take it out? Like, like no, no one's going to carry a three-foot axe yeah. to, no. yeah, pick up a bathing suit or just go attack her. So, it's just, I don't know. One of those where Strange you just kind of, I hate when it's kind of like, unsolved almost you know what i mean even though it is it's there has been a resolution to it and as far as the court goes but it's still so many questions but we want to know what you guys think about this case so send us your thoughts and theories um to either team at texaswineandtruecrime.com or you can leave your comments on our website at www.texaswineandtruecrime.com Well, Jamie, that concludes episode six, A Murderous Visit. If you want to see pictures related to this case, you can find them on our Instagram page, Texas Wine and True Crime. All right, Jamie, so you ready to review this wine? Yes, let's do it. Okay, so I like it. Me too. And you know I'm more of a red wine drinker, Yeah, right? I'm more of a white. You're more of a white. It makes more sense that I would like this, but there are a lot of whites that I've drank that I do not like, and... 
I really like this. So one. I want to know, because you're not a Chardonnay drinker. Right. I want to know, and I know you love Pinot Grigio. What do you like about this wine being a white? I like that it's heavier than a Pinot Grigio because Pinot Grigios are normally very light, more yes. spring, summer. Mm-hmm. I feel like you could drink this in the winter, like with a heavier meal and not have to drink red if you didn't Gosh. like red. This wine would be so good with like crab. Crab legs. That would be good too. Mm-hmm. Heavier yeah. fish yeah. with maybe like a topping on the fish. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Because yeah. it's not it's not light. No. Like, it's not a lighter, but it's also not super heavy, which I like. So it is a little bit of a medium-bodied. Yeah. Um, and it's even kind of warm right now, and it still tastes – like, normally I like yeah. my white wine, like, pretty cold, right? Really not, cold. like, super cold, but and, but right now it's, like, room temp because we've been sitting here talking, yeah. and it's still – it's really good. It's good. Okay, so do you want to cork this one this week? Ooh, give it a cork. <laughs> All right, how many – What did go- I give the, the last one? I don't remember. Because I, I would put it up there. Did we get to? How many are you giving this one? What do you think? Three or four? I went. I was actually going to go three and a half. Oh, okay. Three and a half corks. Three and a half. Three and a half corks. For our our engineer is going to hate us. For, you wouldn't think a half cork is so hard to put on a podcast. <laughs> you just go. <laughs> yeah. You can do it's not, yeah. We just go. <laughs> <laughs> and a little one. <laughs> oh, our mascot's awake. Can you hear our Every mascot? Every time. He knows when it's over. All right. So McPherson, your wine is delicious. I McPherson Cellars is out of Lubbock, Texas. The McPherson family has been part of Texas viticulture and winemaking for over 40 years. McPherson Winery opened in the fall of 2008. Jamie, they have tasting rooms, private events on the property. I'm so ready for COVID to be over so we can go out and I know. mingle with strangers. Um, <laughs> I don't want to meet too many strangers. Well, too many strangers, yeah. <laughs> we'll end up on our own podcast. <laughs> uh, Jamie is an I goal. We have our like vision board not to end up on our podcast. And then we have friends who message us and go, I hope I'm never on your podcast. <laughs> Um, but they also have a wine club, Jamie. So listeners, you can learn more about McPherson at McPhersonsellers.com. All right. So each week, Jamie and I share an organization that inspires us to be givers and just better people in general. So Jamie, what organization do you want our listeners to learn about this week? So this week we are going with BACA, which is <laughs> Bikers that. Against Child Abuse. Their website is BACAWorld.org. Um, the reason I picked this one is because thinking back on the whole candy thing with like the shh, I'm wondering if she went through some sort of child mm-hmm. abuse, something, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, something right. happened to her. Right. So anyway, this organization, Brandy and I both love. It is great. Mm-hmm. They are these big, ruggedy biker guys that would probably scare you to death by looking at them, yes. right? They're very intimidating. Very intimidating. But have the I've seen them speak in person, actually. Really? Yes. Okay. And they wear their jackets yeah. with their names on it. Yeah. They are they are 100% bikers. But I will tell you the coolest thing about this organization and what they actually are there for is they stand in between in court when, right. they're, when the yeah, victim is in the court. They stand next to the victim or in between the perpetrator and the victim that, you know, worth the child abuse mm-hmm. and the accused. Mm-hmm. And they just make them feel at ease. Right, right. So when they find, so this is kind of how they work. When they get um, 
when they find out about a child that's being abused, and it's not necessarily by like a family member inside their home. It can be like a, any type of abuse. A lot of kids are scared to go and tell their parents, right? But sometimes they do. Um, they reach out to, to Baca. Baca, they, like the whole, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Chapter mm-hmm. goes to their house mm-hmm. and they present them like one of their little vests, yes. right? With their patch on the back. And mm-hmm. then they get like two sponsors that will basically protect them, like no matter what. So they're right. like their bodyguards, right? It it's so sweet. They have the biggest hearts. And like you said, yes, if they if a court case is going to happen, mm-hmm. they go to court with them so that the kid knows it's okay to get on the stand, mm-hmm. that they're going to be sitting right there staring down the SOB that did this to them, yes, <laughs> and that they're going to put the fear of God in this person. Mm-hmm. So Ugh, yeah. I'm almost about to cry. I know. Because it's this, so, it's this... so sweet. They have a video on their website that you guys mm-hmm. need to go and check out. It is the sweetest thing. They have, they interview a bunch of the bikers. Mm-hmm. They have to go through, like they have to go to background check. They have to at least um, ride for one year. They get special like instructions from licensed mental health professionals. Yes. So they kind of go through like training. They're not just like these no. rebels without a you. cause out on their bikes, like going around doing things. So they it's, look scary and intimidating. Oh, yeah. I saw them speak in person. Yeah. So they had like three guys from their chapter yeah. speak to to our little networking group that that we were at that day. And but they when they speak and then they talk to you, oh, they, it's like I just want to hug you. Yeah, like, they like you are amazing. Yeah, they get teary eyed talking about these kids too. Do. I mean, they're big softies when it comes to the kids, but huge, I wouldn't I wouldn't mess with them if you're a child abuser. Yes, huge fan of Baca. Please check out their website. They yeah. also do a toy drive. I think every Christmas. I know I was a part of one mm-hmm. a couple of years ago. So definitely check their website out and see if they um, still do those toy drives. But yeah, yeah. great organization, great people, and definitely not talked about enough i want to bring baka yeah. out to light because they really oh it just touches my yeah heart I, I know it's just really it's really good to see those big bir- women and men they're women yeah. and men that's right man, they are they they don't take no <laughs> s word <That's> right. <laughs> well Not thank you listeners thank you so much for being here with yes. us today thank you jamie thank you until next time friends stay safe have fun and cheers to next time Yay.